Jesus' most personal and powerful teachings are conversations with his disciples in the book of John. Nowhere else is his instruction both so simple and so deep. Take your place in the upper room to hear the heart of God that still speaks today. Good morning. We are continuing our sermon series this morning, this, this series where we are looking at Jesus' upper room discourse. Jesus is having dinner. He's sharing the Passover meal with his disciples in that upper room. This is the last meal that they will share together before the crucifixion. And there's some things that Jesus needs to teach them. I know that we've all been in those moments in life where time is short and last words need to be shared. Maybe it's those final instructions that you give to the babysitter as you're dropping your kids off with them. Maybe they're words that you share with your son or daughter as you're dropping them off at the dorm room as they're starting college. Maybe they're words that family members share with a, a dear one as they're nearing the end of life. They're last words and they're important words. And so we want to get them right. I remember during my years of teaching, sometimes there would be this moment of panic that would hit me about six weeks before the end of the school year. I'd be looking through the materials that we still needed to cover and I would realize we weren't going to be able to cover it all. Maybe there were extra school activities that, that cost us a few days of instruction. Maybe there was a concept that students struggled with and so we spent extra days on it. Whatever the cause, we were behind and we were not going to get caught up. And so in that moment, I had to decide what were the most important things for my students to learn. What were the most important things I still needed to teach them? We had spent almost 10 months together. We had covered a lot of territory. But what were those last things I needed to teach them before they left my classroom? I have to imagine that Jesus had some of those same feelings as he sat there sharing that Passover meal with his disciples. They had spent three years together. He had taught them so much. But what were the last truths that he needed to teach them? What were those last lessons for them to learn? What we're looking at in this sermon series are some of Jesus' most important, most profound teachings. Now, we have entered into that season of Lent this week. It's a 40 days leading up to Good Friday and Easter. And it's a time, as we have said throughout the, the past few weeks, it's a time of, of reflection. It's a time of repentance. It's a time of renewal and rejoicing. It's a time of focusing on Jesus' journey to the cross and his sacrifice for us. It's a time that we remind ourselves once again just how much God loves us the extent to which he's willing to go to express that love for us. Now, the Passover meal happened in the midst of a, an incredibly busy week, a week filled with tremendous highs and tremendous lows. Just a few days before was Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that donkey, and the crowd gathered along the parade route, shouting and cheering him on. But within a few hours after this meal, Jesus would be hung on the cross, and he would be crucified. And then a few days later, three days later on Easter morning, Jesus would rise again from the dead. It was an incredible week, a week filled with, with emotions on both ends of the, the gamut. 
Now, one of the things that Jesus wanted his disciples to know, one of the things he wanted them to understand is who he is, who he really is. Throughout the Gospel of John, we see seven I am statements, statements that Jesus says about who he is. I am, I am, I am. A few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' statement where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the only way to a relationship with God. It's only through that relationship that we get to experience the life that we were made for, both now and for all of eternity. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus' statement when he says, I am the true vine. So let's turn to John chapter 15 right now, and let's look at Jesus' words as he speaks these to his disciples. We read from John chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You see, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." There's some imagery in this passage that probably doesn't strike us the same way it would have somebody in that first century. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, that's a statement that's loaded with meaning. See, in the first century, a Jew who would hear these words would understand what Jesus is referring to because throughout the Old Testament, when there's vine terminology, when someone or something is spoken of as the vine, it's always God's people that they're speaking about. It's always Israel. It's it's always God's people. And yet every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used negatively, right? When Israel is referred to as the vine, it was always followed and accompanied by, by words saying that they are the vine that had not borne fruit. And because of that, God's wrath is coming. If you were a Jew in the first century and you heard vine terminology, you would know that this was probably going to be a pronouncement of judgment. Jesus, as he speaks to his disciples here in this upper room, turns that on its head. Got to turn it on. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Basically, he's saying, I am doing what you cannot do. And I am being what you cannot, have not been able to be. This is nothing short of a gospel declaration from Jesus. He is entering into this imagery which reminds them of failure. And he's saying, don't worry. I've got this. I am the true vine. You haven't been able to live with the kind of fruit that pleases the Father, but I am the true vine. Jesus is entering into it. He's rescuing this imagery of judgment, this imagery of failure, this imagery of no matter how hard they try, no matter how hard they work, they always come up short. I think that you and I today may struggle to believe Jesus' words just like someone of that time might as well. Jesus says to us, don't worry, I've got you. 
I'm the true vine. That fruit that, that you haven't been able to, to produce, that fruit that pleases the Father that you haven't been able to live with, I'm now going to make it possible for you to live with that. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that's the, the truth of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, right? Jesus died the death that we deserved to earn the reward that we could never earn, right? Jesus is saying this as he enters into this terminology, as he says these simple words, I am the true vine. Now, I think that there are three things that we can learn from this text. First of all, that since Jesus is the vine, it is only through Jesus that we can be what we were made for. Since Jesus is what we cannot be, Jesus is doing what we cannot do. We enter into this relationship with him where he is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Next, we can learn that we should expect to be pruned. Now, I gotta, gotta say, I wish I could say the word blessed instead of pruned, that we should expect to be blessed, because that's a whole lot nicer, right? But since Jesus is the true vine, we should expect to be pruned. And in just a little bit, we're gonna learn that to be pruned is to be blessed. And then third, Jesus being the true vine gives us the power to love. Jesus being the true vine gives us the power to love. I want to go back to that second one, though, and spend a little bit of time there, that we should expect pruning. Jesus said, he cuts off every branch in me who bears no fruit, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. Branches that do not bear fruit get cut off, but branches that do bear fruit get pruned back so they can be even more fruitful. Now, as we think about this, we need to have a, a quick, hard conversation. To be a Christian means to bear fruit. And if there is no fruit, there is no genuine belief. But how we define that fruit really matters. If we're talking about it only in terms of external, moral, religious behavior, then we're in danger of being no better than the Pharisees because that's how they defined it. For them, it was all about doing the right things and avoiding the wrong things. That's not how Jesus defines it, right? No, Jesus being the true vine cuts off that which does not bear fruit, but he does, those that do bear fruit get cut back. Now, why would God prune what's fruitful? Why would God cut back and prune what's already being fruitful? Well, for it's a good purpose. It's for a good purpose, to bear even more fruit, to be even more fruitful. I remember when Liz and I bought our first house, we were living in Bellflower at that time, and something you need to know about Liz is that she loves roses. This house that we bought had these big, beautiful front windows looking out on our front yard, and Liz wanted to plant rose bushes right in front of those windows so that we could enjoy them as we looked out the, the windows. And so that's what she did. She, she planted them, she fed them, and she watered them. It, it took a while before they grew enough so that we could enjoy them looking out the window, but when they had finally grown enough that we were really enjoying them, I remember coming home from work one day and discovering that she was cutting them down. Or at least that's what it looked like she was doing. Now, she had always loved to cut stems of roses and create bouquets for us to enjoy inside, but that's not what she was doing here. It, she was cutting it back, and it looked like she was killing these rose bushes. Now, please understand that when I was growing up, my mom didn't grow a lot of stuff in our yard, and so I didn't have much experience 
with this. I didn't understand what was happening. But what Liz explained to me, what later was obvious, is something that many of you are well aware of. When you cut back rose bushes, it causes them to be healthier, right? And those rose bushes bloomed even more beautifully that next year. Jesus says, if you are bearing fruit, expect to be pruned so you can bear even more fruit. But here's the question. What is that fruit that he's talking about? And what does it mean to be fruitful? Is Jesus talking about the fact that we're going to suddenly all have very successful careers and that we never get sick and that everybody always loves us? No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about a fruitfulness that exhibits itself in our lives, perhaps through fruitful ministry. But even more than that, Jesus is talking about the fruit that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5. Where Paul says the fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus is saying that you're going to be pruned so that you can produce even more of these things, right? For example, very rarely do we grow in the area of patience simply by praying for it. More often, God puts us in situations where we are challenged, and through those situations, we grow in patience. God uses those situations to prune us, to grow us, so he can bear even more fruit. I remember a friend telling me one time that earlier in his life, he had struggled with patience. He wasn't a patient person. And he was praying that God would give him more patience, that he would grow this in him. He said, God answered that prayer by giving him seven kids. (laughs) In the movie Evan Almighty... Morgan Freeman plays the role of God, and there's a a scene in this movie where Morgan is having a conversation with this woman who's been praying that God would cause her family to grow closer together. And here's how he responds. He says, let me ask you something. If someone prays for patience, you think God gives them patience, or does he give them the opportunity to be patient? If you prayed for courage, does God give them courage, or does he give them opportunities to be courageous? If someone prayed for the family to be closer, do you think God zaps them with warm, fuzzy feelings? Or does he give them the opportunities to love each other? Now notice these are the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. The reason why it's singular and not plural is because if you were to tease one of these out and make it singular, you would find that it reveals itself to be a counterfeit fruit. Because the truth is if you have one, it helps you to grow in the others. When you lack one, you probably are lacking in the others. And so if you lack patience, then you're probably not loving. If you lack love, then you probably aren't walking in any real joy. If you lack joy, then you probably are lacking in kindness. If you lack kindness, you probably aren't walking in a lot of goodness. If you lack goodness, you're probably not faithful. If you lack faithfulness, you're probably not gentle. Because this is fruit that grows symmetrically over time. Now, here's the thing. As we read those verses about the fruit of the Spirit that that listed the fruit of the Spirit, I know that there is no one in here that pointed at that list and said, that's me. That is totally me. I am totally full of the fruit of the Spirit. There's no room for improvement. Thanks, Pastor Alon. Thanks for the encouragement. I'm out of here. That's not where we are, right? That's not where we are. All of us in this room, pastors included, are not where we once were but we're also not where we eventually will become, right? I am nowhere near where I want to be. 
And so Jesus in his kindness continues to prune me, continues to grow me, so I might become more the person he intends me to be. Now over the past few decades, there have been many Christians who have come to, to believe that the life of a Christian, the, the life of following Jesus meant that there would be no more hardships, no more suffering, no more struggles, no more doubt. Basically, feeling like the life of a Christian is going to be some kind of utopia on earth. The thing is, that isn't found in the Bible anywhere. The Bible doesn't talk about life as a Christian that way. The Lord prunes and we grow. The Lord prunes and we grow. Jesus said, I am what you could not be, but I'm going to grow you into who I made you to be. Through my spirit, I'm going to continue to grow you so that you might become more like me. Because I am perfect love. I am perfect joy. I am perfect peace. I am perfect kindness. I am perfect goodness. I'm perfect faithfulness. I'm perfect gentleness. And I have perfect self-control. This is incredibly encouraging to me. Because it tells me that you've got some of this fruit now. But I'm going to prune it back so that you can have even more of it. Now there are two experiences in my life that have caused the greatest growth in my life. Two seasons where God really grew me. Two seasons of pruning. The first happened about 30 years ago when doctors discovered a, a tumor growing out of my left kidney. And the second one was 13 years ago when my daughter was diagnosed with leukemia. These were the most difficult moments in my life, the most difficult seasons in my life. And I can very clearly say that those were the moments, those are the seasons that God grew me the most. <coughs> Now, i got to say, I, I'd never want to experience those moments again. Even though I, I grew more during those times than any other, I, I can't say that I'd ever want to go back into those seasons again. If you are in a season right now where it feels like you are being pruned, where you're in a season of pruning, maybe you're facing difficult challenges at work, maybe there's stuff going on in family, maybe you're dealing with doubt, or maybe you're dealing with fear and anxiety. Please understand that it's not coming because you've done anything wrong. It's not because you're being punished. Because pruning is not punishment. Pruning is not punishment. If we start to think that way, it puts us back in that old way of thinking. Where we think that just because I become a Christian, life is now going to be smooth and easy. No problems anymore. And if there are struggles going on, if there are tough things going on in my life, then it's because of something I've done wrong. No. Pruning is not punishment. Now in verse 3, Jesus says something that's absolutely amazing. He says, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. But Jesus, Jesus is saying, if you don't bear fruit, if you don't believe in me, you're going to be cut off. But if you do bear fruit, then I'm going to prune you back so you can bear even more fruit. But then he says to his disciples, you are already clean because you believe my word that I've spoken to you. You believed what I said to you about who I am. And Jesus has been revealing himself to his disciples, letting them know who he is. He said, I am the son of God. I am the light of the world. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the Messiah. I am the only one who can save you from your sins. And his disciples have believed him. They believed what he said. And because they believed, not because of anything they've done, but because they believed what he said, Jesus says you are clean. Now in the Greek, the word for pruning here is, is very similar to the word used for clean. Because you believed in me, you've been pruned. 
And because you've been pruned, you're ready to bear fruit. Now here's the thing. It leads to what Jesus is going to focus on for the rest of our passage here. In the next few hours, these disciples who have loyally followed Jesus for three years are going to betray him. They're going to disown him. They're going to deny even knowing him. And yet, in spite of that, Jesus tells them that they are already clean, that they have already been pruned, that they're ready to bear fruit. Now, they will be pruned several times in the rest of their life because this is something God does to us and for us throughout our lives. But in spite of what he knows about what they're about to do, Jesus says you're ready to bear fruit. Jesus doesn't disqualify them from ministry. And our shortcomings don't disqualify us. Now, Jesus encourages his disciples in, in verse 4. And in fact, he, he admonishes them to stay re, and to remain in him, to abide in him, to stay connected and grafted into him. Because you and I as a branches cannot bear fruit apart from Jesus, apart from the vine. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And one of the great supernatural mysteries of what it means to be a Christian is around this idea of union with Christ. I am in him, and he is in me. And this talks about several things, but, but mainly it talks about how God sees us. If we are Christians, when God looks at us, he sees the perfect obedience of Christ. He doesn't see your failures. He sees the perfect obedience of Christ. But this union with Christ that we celebrate in communion and, and celebrate in baptism, in which we proclaim in the gospel, refers to an intimacy that we have with Christ an intimacy in which we are welcomed and we are delighted in. Jesus welcomes us into relationship with himself, and he delights in us in that relationship. Now, when I started in church ministry, I was a youth pastor, and there was a story that would play itself out again and again in those years, where a student would join our youth group and get involved in the small groups and the, the, go on the trips and the retreats and, and be a part of the worship times. And inevitably, there was this moment that would happen where this new student would look across the room and be attracted to the holiness that they saw in another student. Now, some people may say they were attracted to how good-looking that other student was, but I prefer to believe that they, they were attracted to the holiness in that student. And, and that student would be attracted to the holiness in them as well. And so they'd start dating. And they'd sit together at youth group. They'd ride together in the church bus on the way to camps and to retreats. They'd sit together in worship on Sunday mornings. But inevitably, the breakup would happen, and suddenly they would start to avoid each other, where they'd sit on opposite sides of the room during youth group, where they'd find a way to get in different vehicles on the way up to camp, and one would sit in the balcony, and one would sit on the main floor during worship. They would avoid each other, not just because they had broken up, but because in the course of breaking up, they had said and done things that offended the other person. That's something that, that happens to all of us, Right? where we feel like I've offended you and, and so now I'm going to avoid you. I've offended you and, and I'm going to stay away and I'm going to avoid you. I think that there's something stunning that goes on in this passage where Jesus is telling us to abide in him, to, to stay connected to him. 
He says, I am in you and you are in me. Stay connected to me because I delight in you, because I welcome you into that relationship. So often, people feel like they got to get their life cleaned up before they can approach God, right? Maybe they're not a Christian yet, and they think that I've got to become a good person. I got to clean up my life before I can become a Christian. I got to get rid of the sin in my life before I can accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Or maybe they're a Christian and they're involved in some kind of sin, some kind of ongoing sin. They, I've got to clean my act up before I can come back to God, come back to God. But the Bible doesn't play out that way. The Bible doesn't talk that way. Jesus doesn't want us to clean up our act before we come to him. He says, come to me and I will help you clean up your life. I will help you to become that good person. Jesus says, don't let that sin that you're dealing with separate us. Come to me. Abide in me. Remain in me. Now this passage that we're reading asks a very fundamental question. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus today? Is discipleship about a commitment to certain beliefs about God and Jesus? Is it a way of life where we live differently than the rest of the world? Or is it an experience, a, a spiritual encounter with God and with Jesus that transforms us? I believe that it's all three. Discipleship is a way of thinking. It's based on specific things that we believe to be true. Discipleship is also a way of living where we do certain things and don't do other things as we follow God's instructions for living. It's also an experience that cannot be compared to anything else in the world. Our passage today speaks very clearly to the fact that, that doctrine, which is what we believe, and ethics, which is how we live out what we believe, are not all that there is to discipleship. John relates Jesus' words about remaining in him, about abiding in him, about having an experience of being grafted into the vine in the same way a branch is grafted into the vine and receives its nourishment and its strength from it. The Holy Spirit within believers allows us to encounter God in such a way that can only be described as supernatural. A few weeks ago, Pastor Don preached about Peter's denial of Jesus. Or Peter said to Jesus, even if everyone else does, I will never betray you. I would lay my life down first. Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will have disowned me three times. Now, Peter is bold, and we love that about Peter. He is impulsive, and he speaks from the heart. He says, Jesus, even if everyone else falls away, I never will. Now, I love Peter. I love how he is bold and how he is, he is so committed. But Peter is arguing with, with Jesus here, right? Peter has confessed Jesus as son of God. He has seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He has seen Jesus walk on water and, and calm the storm, and yet he is telling Jesus, you're wrong, and I'm right. Even if I have to die, I will never betray you. Now, we need to give Peter some credit because when they came to arrest Jesus, he did pull out a sword and try to defend Jesus. But in the end, he did betray Jesus three times. Three times he disowned him after the third one, the rooster crowed. And Jesus turned and looked at Peter from across the courtyard. And immediately Peter knew he had done what he had promised Jesus he would never do. And he fled. It doesn't get any worse than that. It doesn't get any worse than, than denying Jesus in his darkest hours. 
Now, the Bible tells us that after the resurrection, some of the disciples went back to their old jobs. That Peter and a few others were fishermen, and they were out on the lake, and they were fishing, and somebody saw Jesus on the shore. Now, the disciples had interacted with Jesus a few times since the resurrection, but the issue of Peter's betrayal had not come up. And so there was this thing that was still between Peter and Jesus. What would you have done if you were Peter in that moment? Would you have hidden under one of the seats in the boat and hoped Jesus didn't notice you? That's not what Peter did, right? Peter dove into the water and he swam to the shore because he wanted to be with Jesus. I think this is important for us because it helps us to understand our place, our, our position in the presence of God, right? In Christ, we don't have to avoid him. In Christ, we can run to him. Peter jumped out of the boat and swam to him because he wanted to be with Jesus. When we understand who we are in Christ, we don't avoid him, we run to him. Peter needed to be with Christ. He needed to be grafted into the vine because that's where life is found. That's where real life is found. I want to finish with a story of a young boy by the name of Jeremy. Jeremy was one of these really good kids that, that never missed school. He loved school. In fact, it had been three or four years since Jeremy had missed a day of school. But one day, Jeremy did miss school. The next day, he came back to school, and he's wearing these Mickey Mouse ears that you get at Disneyland. The teacher said, Jeremy, where were you yesterday? We missed you. Jeremy gets this goofy look on his face and says, I was at Disneyland. Teacher says, well, wonderful, Jeremy. Why don't you tell us about that? Jeremy says, well, first thing happened, we got there and we, we came to this huge parking lot. It was like six stories high and it had thousands of cars in there. And then we took this escalator all the way down to the ground and there was a, a tram there that took us to where we could buy tickets. We got out of the tram and we bought our tickets and then we got back on the tram and rode it back to the parking lot. We rode that tram back and forth and back and forth all day long. It was great. Teacher got a confused look on her face and said, Jeremy, didn't you go into Disneyland? Didn't you walk down Main Street? Didn't you go to Adventureland and Fantasyland and Tomorrowland? Didn't you go on the rides? Jeremy got a confused look on his face and said, no. Were we supposed to? The life that God offers us, the life in him that he offers us, is what Jesus called the full and abundant life. It's a life of being grafted into the vine in which we get our nourishment and our strength from him that allow us to grow in ways that we could never grow on our own and allow us to live out those, those fruit in ways that we never could alone. We want to live grafted into the vine because that's where life is found. That is where real life is found. And it's offered to each one of us every day of our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your willingness to express that full measure of love as you climbed upon that cross in our place, that you died the death that we deserve to earn the reward that we could never earn. And Jesus, you invite us into life in and through and with you. It's the most amazing offer that anyone could ever receive, and it's a free offer. All we've got to do is, is believe. 
and believing receive it through grace. Lord, may we say yes to that offer every day of our life. May we submit ourselves to you as you seek to prune us and to grow us more and more into the likeness of you, Jesus. Because we want to be like you. And we want to live with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.